1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that we can come to know You through Your Word. I pray, Father, that this message would be um, convicting. It would be encouraging. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be affirmed in our salvation. I pray, Lord, that we would grow in our joy and love for you in and through your word. Father, speak through me and breathe life into these people. I thank you and love you in your name. Amen. So tonight, uh, in, this cha- in this section, is a lot, a lot of things, a lot of doctrine and a lot of... Uh, Practical implication. Um, this this passage, uh, actually, in fact, in the whole letter, it's constant uh, warnings and encouragement and assurance of salvation and um, a lot of doctrine and a lot of if you do this, you're a believer. If you do this, you're not a believer. You prove to not be a believer. So there's a lot of that throughout all of this, and like I said, a lot of doctrine sprinkled in throughout. Um, the flow of this letter is continually uh, affirmation and also a warning. Uh, John wants his readers to be either confirmed in their faith or exposed in their lack of faith. He is concerned for these churches and wants to know, as he is also concerned with us, people who are believers or say they are believers, he's concerned for these people and wants to show them what the Christian life really looks like. Those who say they know Christ and believe in Christ will act and live a certain way, and John wants his readers to know that. Tonight our, our focus is on verses 1 through 6 in chapter 2. In these specific verses, John provides encouragement and affirmation to the believer while at the same time exposing those who say they believe but prove to be lost because of their actions. So, a lot of normally, or I guess not normally, it's kind of been 50-50, but in my study, I go through, sometimes I look and find uh, specific verses or phrases like I have in the past, and then emphasize on those. Um, one of the weeks in the past, I'm not sure which one, but I went verse by verse through the passage and explained what John is saying and what he's talking about, and that is what I'm going to do tonight. So, starting with verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John refers to his readers as little children. He does this because he uh, has a fatherly concern for 
these people, for the churches that he's writing to, and for us. He is serving as their spiritual father, looking after their spiritual health. We need to take his concern for these people as his concern for us in the same way. He wants to confirm and assure us of salvation in the same way that he did for them. He also wants to expose us in our fake Christianity, if that's the case of someone in this room, as he did to them. This may seem like a negative thing to do, but on the contrary, it is the most loving thing that John could do. There is, there is more on this to come later throughout in uh, the coming verses. But in verse 1, John makes an important statement. He says that he is writing these things so that we may not sin. That's kind of important. What are these things that he's talking about that may keep us from sin? If he's writing, if, if what he's writing can really help us to not sin, then we should search long and hard to know exactly what these things are that keeps us from sin. So, these things. John is referring uh, to pretty much summed up in verses 5 through 10. All that was right before this. Um, which everything John said in these verses has been intended to lead us in our sanctification. He explains that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we have fellowship with him, we will walk in the light as he is in the light. Walking in the light with God will keep us from sinning. John is saying that if you are in constant fellowship with God, then you will be kept from sin. He also talks about the power of confession, which Dave talked about last week and how it, uh, how it was used in our sanctification. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. This verse in chapter 2 does not mean we will be perfect, however. We will still sin. We see that in the very next verse when he says, but if anyone does sin. So it's obvious that we're not going to be perfect. We will still sin while in this body on earth. Only in heaven, when we are glorified, will we, will we be perfect, perfected. John is not saying we will be perfect. Rather, that we will progress in our sanctification and become more and more like Christ. We will not be sinless, but we will, however, sin less. That's important. We won't be sinless, but we will sin less as we progress in our sanctification. He goes on to say that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This word advocate has major significance. This word advocate in the Greek is, well, para parakletos. This word means helper and is used four other times in Scripture. In every other place, except for this one, in every other place, this word parakletos is used to describe the Holy Spirit as our helper. Only here is it used to describe Jesus Christ, the righteous. In this context, Jesus is our helper when we sin. He intercedes for us with the Father on our behalf. Romans 8.35 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Um, a little bit more on this uh, word advocate and helper, it's, it's uh, often related to a, I guess like a, a lawyer in like a judicial case and helping and, inter- and helping and interceding for their um, 
whatever you call it, their person, I guess, whoever they're trying to advocate for. Um, also, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, uh, we have one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as a result of the Holy Spirit interceding for our hearts, therefore, as a result, the Holy Spirit intercedes for our hearts, and Jesus is interceding for us in heaven, and no one can separate us who are in Christ from the love of God. What comfort and what peace that should bring those who are in Christ. Verse 1 also mentions that Christ is the righteous. It refers to him. It says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's important. This is important because only the only way that Christ can be our advocate or helper is by him being sinless and undefiled. He was spotless in his nature and in all of his actions. There was and is no one else like him who could make intercession for us. We can be assured and confidence in our helper because he has been manifested and lived a sinless life and died the death we deserved and is now seated at the right hand of God interceding for us with the Father when we sin. When we fall short of God's commands, Jesus steps in and says, paid for. He has taken on the wrath of God for us so that we might enjoy him for all eternity. These things are written so that we may not sin. That we may live joyfully obedient lives because of the sacrifice of Jesus' blood on the cross for our sins. Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In this verse, we have another huge doctrinal statement. He is the propitiation for our sins. Um, Sadly, tonight I'm only going to briefly brush over this verse, because Jeremy is preaching next week, and he's going to go way more in depth with this. Like, his whole sermon is on this verse, pretty much. He references a lot to chapter 1 and before this, but... The bulk of it will be spent in that verse. So I'll only simply brush over this. Um, Jesus Christ is our atonement. That is propitiation. He's our atonement. This word simply means that Jesus Christ has been, uh, has been the appropriate sacrifice needed to justify us who believe. Those who believe are justified by Christ's sacrifice, his atonement. We have been reconciled to God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God that is poured out on all sinners has been satisfied in those who believe in the Son of God because of the death of Christ. We deserve God's righteous, righteous judgment for our transgressions of the law. But Christ has obeyed the law perfectly for us and then took upon himself the wrath of God that we might live for eternity in his presence, worshiping him forever. This verse then goes on to say, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know from John chapter 10 that Jesus lays down his life for those who believe. This verse in chapter 2 is not saying that Jesus has made propitiation for the entire world. If this were true, if Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the entire world, every person... Ah, I lost my spot. Okay, if this were true, then the wrath of God would be satisfied for every, 
if this were true, then the wrath of God would be satisfied for everyone. Yet we see in Scripture that many will suffer from the wrath of God for eternity. So people will suffer and will go to hell. So if Jesus made a propitiation for everyone, then all would go to heaven. And that's not true. What John is actually saying is that the gospel will spread to the ends of the world and will fulfill God's purpose. This is a big call for missions. That's going to be Jeremy's big thing. It's mission-minded. This verse is mission-minded. That is, uh, this is why there are missionaries all over the world. God is using people to spread his glory to the nations. This is just, a, obviously, like I said, this is just a little tidbit. And it doesn't even scratch the surface on this verse. But we see that this verse has uh, massive implications and deserves an entire week. So, good thing you have an entire week next week. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now in verse 3, John transitions into uh, his uh, affirmation and warning. He has given us uh, the theology and the foundation in verses 1 and 2. And now he wants to build on it. Like I said in the beginning, he is concerned for these people and for us. He wants them to have assurance of their salvation or be exposed of their actual disbelief or fake Christianity. This may seem harsh, but it's actually the most loving thing that John could do. He is concerned for these people that they may actually have a false sense of security. He is afraid for those who say they know who God is and live like the world. He says that by this we may know that we have come to know him. What does this mean? What does knowing God mean? There is a difference between knowing God like the Pharisees knew God and the way a true, genuine believer knows God. Knowing God is not simply an intellectual problem. It's not, uh, you don't know God because you're not smart enough. It's a heart problem. The Pharisees had a heart issue. Jesus quoted from Isaiah when he was talking to the Pharisees and said, They honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We see over and over again Jesus asking the Pharisees, have you not read the scripture? And of course they've read the scriptures. Jesus also, uh, they were, of course they've read the scriptures because they were uh, masters of the law. They did every, they white knuckled their way and in hopes to get saved and be saved. Jesus also repeatedly said of those who did not understand his teaching, seeing they do not see. These guys, these Pharisees, were masters of the law. They made it their aim to uphold the law. And they even tied their spices. I don't tie my spices. Yet they, do not, they, yet they did not know God. In Ephesians 1, Paul gives us a clue as to why these Pharisees didn't truly know God. He's speaking to the church in Ephesus and thanking God for giving them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. It was a heart issue. We see that there is a significant heart change that has to happen in order to truly know God. God will remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that delights in Him and is satisfied in Him. Delights in Him. We don't just begrudgingly obey His commands. We delight in them. We delight in Him and we are satisfied in Him. They are blind to seeing the glory of God. 1 Corinthians really nails what I'm trying to say and I actually want to go there. Now, sec- oh, I said 1 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. to six. If you could turn there really quick. 
2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. It says, this is Paul, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God, it is God's doing, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees did not have this light shining in them to give them the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. So we see there is a heart change and a love change that happens in the believer through God's power. John here in this, in this passage is saying that those who truly know him will keep his commands. Truly, know, truly knowing Christ results in true obedience to his commands. God's commands are, a pres- are, are our tre- precious treasure. Whew. God's commands are our precious treasure. Those who believe are treasure. As we keep his commands, our assurance of salvation is strengthened. The more you know him, the more you will delight in him, and the more you will respond in obedience. Verse 4. Go back to First John. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So if truly knowing Christ produces obedience, then those who say, I know him, but do not keep his commandments, are liars, and the truth is not in them. This is the warning that John has for you who say, who, for you, who say you believe, and yet act like Jesus didn't demand obedience. Act like Jesus didn't exist and didn't command us all these things and didn't give us the word of God. If you have no walk with Christ and no relationship with the Father, then you will not obey and you will prove to not be a believer. Therefore, you do not have a a propitiation for your sin, like he's talking about previously. And Christ is not your advocate. This is not a works-based salvation. This letter was written to confirm the saints. It was not written to, to save, it was written to confirm the saints. John is trying to get us to realize the path, what path we're on. Knowing Christ produces obedience to his commands. Keeping the commands of God is not a condition of knowing God, but it is a clear sign that we do know God. I'll say that again. Keeping the commands of God is not a condition of knowing God, but it is a clear sign that we do know God. Verse 5. But whoever, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Now John contrasts the one who says they know God and the one who actually knows God. One who says, oh I know God, but they really don't, to the one who actually truly knows God intimately. Those who are in Christ keep his word and the love of God is perfected in them. This means that those who keep God's word have the love of God in them already. And it is maturing and sanctifying them. The more you know and study God's word, the more you will love him and delight in him 
and obey Him. You cannot obey God unless you love Him. These three ideas are wrapped up together and build off each other. uh, Abiding, delighting, obeying, or knowing, loving, and uh, obeying. The more you know God, the more you delight and love God. And the more you love God, the more you will obey Him. When we carefully obey God's word, we grow in our love for God. The unbeliever cannot obey God because he neither knows Him nor loves Him. If we knew God, we would love Him and obey Him. The two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is why the Pharisees did not know God. Their hearts were far from Him, and they did not know the Son of God. The unbeliever cannot even know true love Because God is love, and they do not know him. God is love, and those who know God know love. The unbeliever uh, can enjoy God's gifts, in part, of course, but to their full potential, uh, but not to their full potential, the way God intends it to be. Like a lost person can enjoy food, can enjoy sex, can enjoy sports, can enjoy marriage, but not the way God has intended it, to be enjoyed. You find full, ultimate satisfaction in God's gifts when you know God and when you love God. They cannot know true love and true joy apart from knowing and loving God because God is the ultimate end of all things. All these things were meant to point us to Christ. All these treasures, food, like I, meant, like I listed, they were all meant to point us to Christ and to God. And to glorify God because of them. So we see that the one who keeps God's word. In him truly the love of God is perfected. That person is matured. And shaped into the image of his son. You want to love God more? Abide in his word. You want to obey God's commands? Abide in God's word. We must be living and abiding in the word of God. So we can know, love, and obey God. Verse 6. Really, I think by this we may know that we are in him is attached to verse 6. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, in which Christ walked. Now, uh, wait, shoot, sorry. John instructs us again with this repetition. It's very repetitive and very kind of all over the place. John instructs us again with this repetition and he uses the term, Abide. That's our theme. He uses the term abide. Those who say they abide in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. This is how we can be assured of our salvation. If we take an honest assessment of our lives and ask ourselves, are we really walking in the same way in which Christ walked? Honestly, just consider your, the way you uh, ooze out to people. Consider what kind of vibe you're putting off. Are we really walking in the same way in which Christ walked? Are we being changed and molded and shaped into Christ's image? Those who know Christ will abide in His Word and will grow in their obedience and love for God. This is the process of sanctification. This is what 
that process entails. This is the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Jesus said in Matthew, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We who are saved take delight in following Christ's commands. They are the instruction manual for life. His commands are not burdensome. This is the love of God that we keep his commands. This is the love of God that we keep his commands. This letter oozes with assurance of faith. Later on, this whole letter does. Later on in chapter 3, John says that the one who abides in Christ... um, Oh, that... Later on in John chapter 3... He says that no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. He says this in chapter 3. Again, I want to stress this is not perfection. I'm not saying you need to be perfect. You need to never, he's not, he's not saying you will never sin if you're saved. John is not saying that we have to be perfect. He is saying that our lives will look different from the world. We will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. How will we ever walk in the same way in which he walked without abiding in the word of God? We can't. It's impossible. It is God's power that sanctifies us and strengthens us. Paul said, I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It was the grace of God that was working in him. We do not have to be be like Christ to be assured. We want to be like Christ, and are assured. I'll repeat that. It's a little funny, the way it's worded. We do not have to be like Christ to be assured. We want to be like Christ and are assured. It's not a works-based salvation. To know God is to love God, and to love God is to obey God. So in closing, I want to remind you that for those who are in Christ we have an advocate with the Father who is interceding for us on our behalf when we sin. And if you are in Christ, His blood has washed you and cleansed you from the condemnation of sin. In all these things you are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. And you are called to walk in the newness of life. For those who are honest with themselves and have heard the warning from John and realize you're not uh, obeying God's commands and and your life doesn't look any different from the world's, to these people, these people may go to church and say a couple prayers when life gets hard. But if you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, I urge you, as John has, abide in the Word of God. Cherish the Word of God. Beg God to give you a heart that loves Him and delights in His commands. Pray that God would pour out his love on you so that you may know true love. True love is to be had. The only way to know true love is to know God. This propitiation 
that we talked about in this atonement, this salvation is offered to you if you repent of your sin and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the only name by which we can be saved. So, as always, we're going to have small groups. And um, we have, I'm going to see how many people stay for them, and because uh, Juice isn't here. So, if not many people stay, then we can have one group, but multiple, I hope multiple people stay. I hope a lot of people stay.